And when he quoted that verse, he then simply asked, are you doing your duty? And he hit me like a rock because I realized then, even though I took the verse very literally, looking at myself as a man, even though I was still a boy, pretty much, I realized I wasn't doing my duty. And I remember grabbing on to the pew in front of me because I wasn't going to go forward for salvation. Thank you for tuning in to the Removing Barriers podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm MCG. And we're attempting to remove barriers so we can all have a clear view of the cross. This is episode 100 of the Removing Barriers podcast. And this is the 30th in the series of How Were Your Barriers Removed? And in this episode, we will find out how MCG's barriers were removed when he came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This episode of the Removing Barriers podcast is sponsored by SWAP. If you are using paper maps for your outreach ministry, there is an easier way to create maps and follow up with contacts. Introducing the Soul Winning app, or SWAP for short. SWAP allows your church to effectively set up an outreach area, digitally map that area, and allow app users to easily show progress on that map. You can print maps, record prayer requests, and follow up with contacts. Swap is offering a 30-day free trial and money-back guarantee. Go to thesoulwinningapp.com or theswap.io to sign up today. Swap, the only outreach software designed specifically for soul winning and soul winners. This is going to be so fun to say, but MCG, welcome to the Removing Barriers podcast. Why are you welcoming me? (laughs) Since you're on the other end of the mic now, I can welcome you. I'm really excited to hear your testimony, although I've heard it before, but for you to share it with our listeners. So let's jump right into it. What state or country were you born in? I was born and raised in the twin island nation of Antigua and Barbuda. Is it Antigua or Antigua? Unlike most Americans, (laughs) it's Antigua and Barbuda. Antigua and Barbuda. So for those that don't know, where in the world is that? Where in the Caribbean is that? When we say Caribbean, most people think Jamaica, and that's just about all they can find. But where in the Caribbean is... Antigua and Barbuda. So if you go from the tip of Florida down to the Caribbean, the Caribbean is basically a semicircle from the tip of Florida all the way to the northern tip of South America. Mm -hmm. If you follow that semicircle and you go to the very center of it, Antigua will be somewhere around it in the center. And Barbuda will be about 32 miles north of Antigua. I've been to Antigua. It's an absolutely beautiful country. There are times where I've asked MCG, why in the world would you come here, leave paradise to come here? Absolutely beautiful country. So what type of family were you born into, MCG? I was born in a broken family, to say the least. Was raised by a single mother. There were six of us. I have two older sisters, two older brothers, and a younger brother. So I'm the fifth of six. Well, at least of what I know of. I heard through the grapevines that my biological father may have another son. I've never met him. I've just heard of him. Mm-hmm. So, but in terms of the siblings I grew up with, 
and their children my mother has. There are six of us, and I'm the fifth of the six. My mother is from a very large family, though. She has about 29 siblings from my count, and my biological father has about 17. There are about 17 of them. So all in all, I have about 50-plus aunts and uncles when we factor in great aunts and great uncles that I know of. Wow. And something like 100 plus cousins well (laughs) hundreds of cousins actually well more than a hundred as a matter of fact my brothers and i used to joke that we will never marry an antiguan because they most likely will be a cousin (laughs) so very large extended family okay before salvation what were your life and upbringing like in your large family well despite the obvious shortcomings you know, fatherless home and stuff like that. I would describe my childhood as being a very fun one. I had a Rastafarian uncle. Well, I had a lot more than one, but Uncle Eric was the one who lived right next door to us. He was Rastafarian. However, he had, I think, something like 300 sheep and probably 50-plus cattle. And we had to help him with those because he never got married. He doesn't have any kids. But because of him, we had access to horses and donkeys and stuff like that. So we were able to help him. But afterwards, we'll race the donkey. We'll race the horses. (laughs) We'll race the donkey with the horses and stuff like that. We'll go fishing. We'll go hunting for fruits like mangoes and oranges, grapefruit, lime, lemon coconuts, grava, guinep, dams, you know, and a lot more. Golden apple. There was so much fruit on a tropical island that you basically have at your disposal. So I would say it was very fun looking back on it. It wasn't typical of the Antiguan kid, I would say, at least the kid from the city area. We were more in what we call the country. And because of Uncle Eric, he had access to a lot of things that a lot of the kids probably didn't have access to. So it was especially myself and my older brother, the one just above me. But yeah, I would say it was pretty fun. So after we helped Uncle Eric, we'll go basically roaming because no one does anything to kids in the islands. It's kind of like, you know, you are five, six, seven, eight, and you can be on your own miles away from your home, roaming in the great outdoors. (laughs) And it wasn't really a safety issue because no one really would harm a kid back then. It's funny because I talked to my niece and nephews and their upbringing is nothing compared to what I had. By that time, Uncle Eric only had about 20 sheep, 10 cattle, and he didn't need as much help anymore. He didn't have as much donkeys or horses anymore. So they didn't get a chance to ride the donkeys and ride the horses and all that stuff. But yeah, so I will say my upbringing before salvation and my upbringing of a whole was a fun one because of Uncle Eric. Despite his weird belief, as I said, he was Rastafarian. But despite his weird belief, we definitely had fun with him. So even as a child, did you acknowledge, you just called his belief a weird one, Rastafarianism, of course. 
compared to the gospel is obviously not the truth. Did you realize that as a child or is that part for the course in Antigua? Are there a lot of Rastafarians or was that out of the norm? Your average American person probably has never brushed tails or brushed shoulders with anything Rastafarian apart from maybe Bob Marley's music. So to have an actual practicing Rastafarian, I would say is out of the norm generally. Is that the same in Antigua growing up or are Rastafarians well represented in Antigua? I'm not quite sure if I would say well represented, but there are quite a few of them in Antigua and throughout the Caribbean. So it's not something foreign to us. Okay. The thing about Rastafarian you will see in the U.S. is that the Rastafarian will grow their hair into a lock, or what we call locks. But that is part of their religious upbringing. They will smoke weed as a part of their religious ceremony mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And the very strict ones will actually move to the bush or the mountains or whatever and live there, maybe live in a hut or something. Some of them, the in-between ones, will probably live in the communities, but they will give up anything that gets unnatural. So they will use clay pots and wooden utensils and stuff like that because they don't want to use the metal ones and all that stuff. They have all these weird beliefs. Rastafarian, basically, they sworn to the Nadivite vow. If you think about Samson, they believe Samson in the Bible was actually a Rastafarian because the Lord told him not to put any razor on his head. So they use the King James Version and they will hold to the same vow that Samson had to hold to. Though if you read the Bible, they were never really close, mm-hmm. but they will tell you that they vowed the vow of the Nazarite. And Ungaric was one of the oldest, at least in his area, in the Rastafarian community. So. Because of that, they call him Roots, and he kind of encouraged a lot of the young men coming up to join the Rastafarian movement. Uncle Eric was, I would say, one of the strict ones in terms of that as he get older and older in the Rastafarian faith, he gave up women. He decided that he's not going to... They basically don't participate in society, which right. is kind of weird because they don't eat meat, they only eat plants, beans, and stuff like that. Some of them actually eat fish, and some of them don't care and eat meat as well. But I guess you have the liberal Rastafarians and the mm-hmm. real strict ones, just like any other religion. But Uncle Eric didn't eat meat. In his younger age, he always cooked in what we call a jabba, which is a clay pot. And what they do is that they get coconut, the jai coconut, and they will scrape the the meat out of it or the cotyledon mm-hmm. out of it and they will strain it and you'll produce the milk and they will actually use the milk and cook. The food is actually very good. Ungaric will cook for us all the time. They don't use salt in their food neither. Again, this is more Ungaric belief. Some of them do it a little bit differently, but this is some of the stuff. Everything they will say will end with I. So they will say I and I Rastafari. If you ask them how they do it, they will say I doing good eye or something. They use a lot of eye in their vocabulary. Mm. Yeah, and of course, they believe that Jesus Christ will actually come back as Hail Selassie, or Hail Selassie I, as they will say. And they believe that actually Hail Selassie is their Messiah. And they believe that one day they will be going back to Africa. That's their ultimate 
destination. They believe that Africa will be their guest, quote-unquote, heaven or Canaan. So when their Messiah returns, they believe that he will gather all of the Rastafarians and basically take them to and Africa. And take them to Africa to live forever and... Basically. Basically, okay. That's basically their belief. And again, they will smoke marijuana or weed as a ceremonial practice and stuff like that. I know recently, in the last couple of years, the laws have changed in Antigua where Rastafarians were complaining of being discriminated against because they were, you know, growing up, if you're a Rastafarian, you were kind of looked down upon because at least some of them were because a lot of them, they will always smell of weed or their sanitary conditions were not always up to par. I must say Uncle Eric was never like that in terms of his sanitary condition. But some of I mean, if they're living out in the mountains and living... Yeah, but yeah. some of them were. Some okay. of them didn't have good hygiene practices right, okay. for whatever reason, whether that's part of their belief or not. They always look upon that you'll either be poor or don't really have a lot of money because some of them don't participate in society in that way. Mm-hmm. Uncle Eric was a little bit different because he had all these animals. He will sell them. He will never butcher them for anybody, but he will sell them knowing that they will be butchered. But I guess at that point, he doesn't care. That's the way he would make money. Mm-hmm. he make money by selling his cattle and his sheep and stuff like that. So yeah, I grew up around Uncle Eric a lot. He and I have had several spiritual conversations. I think at some point, he was probably disappointed when I got saved and maybe didn't go towards the Rastafarian faith, mm-hmm. even though he never said that. But he, when I got saved, he and I would talk about the Bible a lot. And of course, disagree a lot as well, because they, like any false religion, take a non-literal view of the scripture. Oh, okay. So he would tell you that Jesus Christ encourages disciples to smoke weed, because when he told them, sit down here, I think this is a verse in John, because there were many grass around. The grass there, he believed, is weed. Oh, there was a bunch of grass in the place, or that right. verse? Um... So. It's a figurative view of scripture. They're not taking scripture literally. Of course, going back to the vow of another right. The vow of another right is not the Rastafarian vow, but they take it as that. So. Mm. so you mentioned that Uncle Eric lived next door to you, but he didn't live in the house with you. So in your home, apart from Uncle Eric's influence with the Rastafarian and just who he was, would you say that your family was a religious one? Did you grow up going to church or was church something that you started going to after you were saved or was it an atheistic home, agnostic? What was the religious makeup of your upbringing in addition to Uncle Eric's yeah. Rastafarian? Yeah. My mom has always been very religious, even though I'm not quite sure what she holds to. Growing up, she will go to the Salvation Army church, she will go to the Baptist church, and sometimes she will go to whatever church she was invited to. So she has always been religious. So we grew up going to the Salvation Army Sunday school that they will have in the community. And then sometimes she will take us to the Baptist church that I end up going after I got saved. But she has always been religious. I'm not quite sure she's saved, but their atmosphere wasn't Christian, if that's mm-hmm. what you're asking. He wasn't Christian. So mostly he was growing up, he was helping Uncle Eric, basically roaming the great outdoors, fishing, hunting for fruits, donkey racing, horse racing, playing sports like cricket, football, the real football, not the stuff American call football, <laughs> basketball, and of course, 
we also went to school. But, okay. Yeah. So you had a very Opie Taylor-ish upbringing, go to school, and then after that, you're free to roam the entire town or countryside, a very idyllic upbringing. I don't know. I would say it's Opie Taylor, but definitely it sure. wasn't necessarily restrictive in the sense that, you know, in the U.S., you have to have your yard fencing and make sure you keep your eyes on your kids and stuff like that. It wasn't like that growing up. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. So you mentioned that your mom was very religious, but you went to different churches and there wasn't anything particularly Christian about your upbringing. So then when was the first time that you recall that you heard the gospel? Yeah, I'm not sure the first time I heard the gospel. As I said, my mom has always been religious, Mm -hmm. even though I don't think she's saved. On Sunday afternoons, the Salvation Army would come to the community and they would send what we call a lieutenant. The Americans would say lieutenant. Mm -hmm. Of course, Americans change all the words. Mm -hmm. So a lieutenant from the Salvation Army will come to the community and have Sunday school. It's typical Sunday school. We'll go, we sing choruses, memorize scriptures. A lot of those scriptures I actually still remember to this day. Mm. Also, that same lieutenant will actually come back on Monday nights to have a woman's group. Usually, the lieutenant is a woman. And then also, two of them would come, and a guy would come as well, sometimes on Sunday for Sunday school. But the woman will come back on Monday evenings to have a woman's group. And it was basically my mother and sisters will attend. As far as I know, they attended this thing for years. And they probably still do attend it, even though it no longer takes part in our community. They have to gather in another community a couple miles away now. But they will come every Monday night. They will do crafts. They will memorize scriptures. They will play games. But it was a bunch of unsaved women who were living their life of sin and never really heard the gospel. I think the Salvation Army did a great injustice to the community of women in my area and probably throughout the islands that they had this thing. I'm really not impressed by what the Salvation Army did because there was just a group of women. Their life never changed. Bunch of them have kids out of wedlock, multiple kids, and they never really heard the gospel, they still go to whatever church they want to go to and stuff like that. I remember that mom used to jog us to what they call home lead. Actually call it home lead, this woman's group. And mom will jog us to that. And I remember as a little kid, even before I was saved, that they would sing songs and at the end of home lead they will hold hands in a circle and they will sing Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. And then they will quote Proverbs 31, 27. She looked well to the ways of her household and eat not the bread of idleness. Even that verse, I knew it just because I was taken to home lead so much. as a, I'm talking about really young at this point. Mm-hmm. And I heard them quote. But even though I didn't have those kind of thoughts back then, when I got saved and looked back on home lead and stuff like that, you know, because this went on for years, as far as I remember. As I said, it might still be going on. I haven't asked my mom about it in a long time. But I've never heard the gospel presented there or anything. And as far as I know, none of the women that have gone to home lead have ever gotten saved. Mm. So it was just a religious 
stuff that the Salvation Army was doing that really meant nothing. But the Sunday school was a little bit different. Not that they presented the gospel there, but because it was kids and you're teaching them scripture and you're teaching them Bible history or what they call Bible stories. At least for me, a lot of them stuck, but they never amounted to anything that I felt like I had a need for a savior. I remember during the summer vacation. So in the islands, we will get about eight weeks summer vacation. And I remember that we will spend some of that time in the city with a great aunt of mine and her daughter and her kids, because she had kids my age. And then we will go to their church. I remember I went to their church, which is an independent Baptist church. And I remember a missionary's wife was teaching the Sunday school class I was in. And they asked me to raise my hand for something. I didn't really understand what I was raising my hand for. But they took me to a different room and we prayed or whatever the case may be. But I didn't get saved then because I didn't understand what was going on. They say, raise your hand. And I raised my hand Mm -hmm. as a kid. So the first time I heard the gospel, I'm not quite sure when. But I do remember going to the Salvation Army Sunday school, going to stuff like Bible clubs and stuff like that, Mm. and going to church with my great aunt daughter, which will essentially be my second cousin and her family. But outside of that, I can't tell when I actually heard the gospel for the first time. Okay. So do you have a particular crystallized memory? It doesn't have to be the first time you heard the gospel, but do you have a memory crystallized in your mind of hearing the gospel where it particularly stirred you, or at least it was memorable. You remember it. Probably you didn't get saved right at that point, but you remember that particular gospel presentation. Uh, no, I can't think of any time I heard the gospel and really stuck, at least not in a church setting or anything. So okay. I will say no. So when then did you come to the full realization of your sin? So a few years later, after I attended my great aunt's church and I raised my hand and they took me to a different room to pray and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I don't remember how long after because being that young, years and stuff like that doesn't really compute at times. But sometime after that, and I think it was probably a good four or five years after that, I was watching a movie by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I remember, even though I did not know how to explain it then, I was on the conviction. Mm-hmm. And I was on the conviction for about a year and a half after watching the movie Jesus of Nazareth. During that time, I remember a number of folks actually witnessed to me. But I knew enough Bible because of their Salvation Army Sunday School to dismiss them. I remember one person was witnessing to me and telling me how to be saved. And I quoted John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that truth that believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I told him that I believe, so therefore I'm not going to perish. Wow. So the Salvation Army stuff actually inoculated you against the gospel. Well. In some ways. Probably it did. I'm wow. not quite sure. I don't think I would blame the Salvation Army. I mm-hmm. think it was more that is my stubbornness and my headiness in that regard because, you know, to convince me then was like, okay, you're trying to tell me something from the Bible and I'm telling you I know the verse and you're trying to tell me, well, this is what the verse means. Well, I'm like, that's what you say. But I also say, though, that 
and I think this is still the case, in schools and in public schools in the islands, the Bible is read. Mm-hmm. So we will read the Bible. So I'm getting the Bible at Salvation Army Sunday School. We actually memorize scripture in school. So like I remember we memorizing Ephesians chapter 6, I think the first couple of verses and several other verses in school during praise time. So I was getting Bible everywhere I go. I think in the public schools in Antigua, they still do what they call praise, where you read the Bible and have a time of prayer. So the Bible is still in public school in the island. So people grew up with a religious underpinning still. Mm. So it wasn't just the Salvation Army. It was the fact that I knew the verses that the person was telling me, and he was telling me what they meant. And I was telling them, well, this is what, you know, he said, believe, I believe. So what are you trying to tell me? That basically was their discussion. But I think the Lord was slowly putting people and circumstances in my path to draw me. I was resisting mm-hmm. that conviction with every fiber of my being. I resisted becoming a Christian because even though, you know, as a kid, I still knew based upon the few Christians I see around me that my life would have to change. And I didn't want that. So I was on the conviction for probably a year and a half to two years once I watched that movie, Jesus of Nazareth. So while I don't like what the Salvation Army did in terms of home lead and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. and even Sunday school, I don't think one kid got saved in Sunday school. Mm. So I don't think they presented the gospel in a way that people can hear the gospel. But they did allow us to memorize scripture. And that's a seed that was planted. Mm -hmm. So I have to give them credit for that. But definitely Home Lead, I think they did a real, real disservice to the community with Home Lead. But full realization of my sin, I think I would say was when I watched Jesus of Nazareth, even though I wouldn't say that it was so much my sin that was drawing me or my sin that looked ugly to me, it was the fact that I wanted to be like Jesus. I remember watching the movie, wanted to be like Jesus. But even though after that people witnessed to me, I still rejected them because I know that a lot would have to change if I become a Christian. And I was stubborn. I'm still stubborn. So (laughs) I think that was the case there. Besides stubbornness, you say, not I say, besides the stubbornness that you mentioned and besides those other factors that prevented you from getting saved, What barriers existed between you and salvation at this particular point in your life? You've watched Jesus of Nazareth. You see a portrayal of him. You want to be like Christ, and yet you're resisting because you know your life would have to change. So that's a barrier, the stubbornness there. What other barriers do you think were preventing you from being saved? Definitely, friends. I would say I joined the wrong crowd. But many times... You mean in your neighborhood or in your school or both? Both. Okay. But many times I was the wrong crowd. I can't really put it on much folks because usually I'm with my older brother, the one just before me. Mm -hmm. And of course, because he's older, he's normally with the older friends. So when I'm with people that's younger, I'm usually, at least growing up in the community, I was usually the one that's the oldest. So I'm, quote unquote, be the ringleader. Mm -hmm. Even though my mother did have a good friend who lived in the same community with us. And she had a son that was about my age as well. And we were known in the community to cause trouble. So when both of us were together, it was more, you know, look out for MCG and this guy because 
they're going to do some nonsense. And again, as boys growing up, we were just mischievous. It wasn't that we were doing anything, quote-unquote, really crazy. It was just keep an eye on them when you see them kind of thing because they will do some nonsense, whatever the case may be. So I guess friends, I remember while under conviction, I was walking around a Pentecostal open-air service because in the islands, a lot of church will go maybe on a permanent street corner and basically have a church service there. And I remember I had to walk around them to get where I was going. And as I was walking around them, I remember the preacher says, do not let your friends take you to hell. And that hit me like a rock because mm. that was me. Mm-hmm. I was resisting the spirit, drawing because I didn't want to give up the friends that I have, so to speak. And as you mentioned, and as I mentioned earlier, of course, my stubbornness, you know, I was, or you can say still, I'm still stubborn. I'm very hard to convince of something that I've already been convinced of. Sometimes to convince me, you might as well go and kick rocks because that's kind of just my personality. So I let's say folks attempt to witness to me, but my stubbornness was definitely one of the biggest barriers that I had. It was more of, oh, you're telling me that I already know this, so whatever the case may be. So I think in order for me to be saved and get those barriers removed, I believe the Lord had to break my will, basically. Basically break my will. How did he do that? Go into how those barriers were removed. Well, sometime after I watched that movie, Jesus and Nazareth, and of course, on a conviction and stuff like that, still registering the Holy Spirit because of my stubbornness. I don't remember exactly when, but there's a gentleman in our community. He got married to a Jamaican lady, and she had her granddaughter living with them. And... I don't know if I befriended her or she befriended me. I don't know exactly how the friendship started. But anyway, I end up and would go down to their home and her granddaughter and I would play together and stuff like that. Just kids growing up. And I eventually started referring to her as my second mom. We became very close and stuff like that. Eventually, I think it was a year after or so that her daughter, the granddaughter, Mm -hmm. mother, and her husband migrated to Antigua from Jamaica as well. But they were Seventh-day Adventists, but they actually are also professed Christians. So I was surrounded by my second mother, as I call her, and her daughter and her family, who all professed to be Christians. And so the daughter and her husband and their family were Seventh-day Adventists. My second mom, she goes to a Moravian church. So it's kind of you know, a mixed bag of everything. And then, of course, I'm going to the Salvation Army Sunday school. Anyway, sometime during that time, my second mom invited me to an evangelistic meetings they were having at their church, Moravian church. But it wasn't at her church. It was either not a Moravian church in a different community. So I remember going to that evangelistic meeting, you know, getting ready, jumping on the bus with my second mom and everything, and we go. But even before that, the day of, because I said I was on the conviction, the day of, I actually remember going by myself and prayed. I was trying just to get the conviction to go away because I was carrying this thing for, at this point, a year and a half. Wanted to be like Jesus, but stubborn enough not to listen to anybody or to ask any questions. So... It was just for it to go away, but it didn't go away, of course, because I was using the Bible as 
aspirin, basically, because I want the conviction to go away. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that evening, I went to the evangelistic meeting, still on the conviction, and it was youth night. And the pastor was preaching from Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And he went from verse 1, he said, Remember now they're creating the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, have no pleasure in them. Then from there he went from verse 2 until verse 13, kind of explaining why you should remember now they're creating days of the youth. Quite honestly, I didn't really understand anything he was saying. And quite honestly, I don't remember anything he said until about verse 13. When he quoted verse 13 and said, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandment, for this is the whole duty of man. And when he quoted that verse, he then simply asked, Are you doing your duty? And it hit me like a rock because I realized then, even though I took the verse very literally, looking at myself as a man, even though I was still a boy pretty much, I realized I wasn't doing my duty. And I remember grabbing on to the pew in front of me because I wasn't going to go forward for salvation. And I remember holding on to that until tears start flowing down. Again, my stubbornness was just kicking it. I was determined that I wasn't going forward. And I think it was about, it seemed like five minutes or more that I was there just wrestling, I guess, with the Holy Spirit because I'm not going to be saved. I'm not going forward. And then as the tears were flowing down, I finally asked the folks in the pew to let me out. And I remember as I got out of the pew and turned to walk up, the entire conviction just went away. It was like the Lord just wanted me to submit. Mm. A lot of people say, of course, you have to pray for salvation and all this stuff. You know what? I felt like I was saved the very moment you let go of that I pew. stepped out in that pew and mm. turned to walk up. The conviction just totally went away. Because at that point, I believe in my heart, my spirit jumped across that chasm, that gulf that was between me and Christ and cling to that cross. And I was saved. I did went forward and I did repeat what the pastor was saying. Quite honestly, I didn't understand what he was saying. So I was just mumbling what he was saying. But I know at that moment when I surrendered and let go of that pew and give up some of that stubbornness that the Lord saved me. And I'm not preaching salvation by works or anything because the way I got saved was placing my faith and trust in Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. But I think the Lord had to break that stubbornness that was in me and help me to surrender. I think salvation, you're surrendering your life to Christ. Absolutely. You're putting your faith and trust in him alone. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. It wasn't a verbal prayer or open prayer that saved me. It was the fact that I surrendered to Christ and Christ alone. As I said, when the preacher asked the question, are you doing your duty? It hit me like a rock. Mm. But I still had to make that final decision because I knew, I knew scriptures. As I said, so I knew what I needed to do. But I think as a kid, I see all myself as a man and I didn't see myself as doing my duty. And with that, I couldn't resist anymore. So that night I was gloriously saved. listening to the Removing Barriers podcast and we are finding out how MCG's barriers were removed. We'll be right back. This is the Removing Barriers podcast. 
if the podcast or the blog were a blessing to you, leave us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to share the podcast with your friends. Removing Barriers, A Clear View of the Cross. Hi, this is Jay. MCG and I would like for you to help us remove barriers by going to removingbarriers.net and subscribing to receive all things Removing Barriers. If you'd like to take your efforts a bit further and help us keep the mics on, consider donating at removingbarriers.net slash donate. Removing Barriers, a clear view of the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So, MCG, you let go of that pew. You threw yourself onto the cross that covered the chasm that separated you and God. And he saved you, gloriously saved you. What changes were evident in your life after that point? So, besides not being on the conviction anymore. Which is nice. <laughs> I started sharing my faith almost immediately. It baffles me that Christians don't share their faith because once I got saved, I think it was immediate that I started sharing my faith. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's anyone that I went to school with, that I was in class with, that they can say that MCG never shared the gospel with them. I remember literally when we had free time or a teacher didn't show up for class for whatever reason, I will go from desk to desk and sit with my fellow students and share the gospel with them. I also started reading the Bible intensely. I read through the Bible several times in the first year or two after I got saved. I also started seeking to be discipled. So I mentioned my second mom, daughter, they were Seventh-day Adventists. Mm -hmm. So they started discipling me. They actually gave me their old, what they call quarterly, which is basically a devotional, Seventh-day Adventist devotional book. So once they're done with the one that they're using and they got a new one, they'll give the old one to me. And I remember going through those books, basically day by day. And I grew leaps and bounds by it. It was more Christian living more than doctrine, mm -hmm. even though, of course, they did teach me their doctrine, like not eating pork and stuff like that, that Seventh-day Adventist teachers. I began to seek to attend church more regularly. I was going to attend a Moravian church because I got saved at a Moravian church. So I figured, well, I'm going to go to a Moravian church, the same one my second mom was going to. And I was going to walk for convocation. I actually don't even know what convocation is, but that's something my second mom told me that it will be the next step. So I was going to walk for convocation. And that's when my mom actually stepped in and said, no, you're not going to the Seventh-day Adventist church. You're not going to the Moravian church. You're going to have to go to the independent Baptist church that was within walking distance. Well, all of them were within walking distance from where I live, but the Baptist church was the closest. Mm -hmm. And she said that I would have to go there. So I went to the Baptist church, not necessarily because of doctrine or anything, but because that's the church my mom says I have to go to. And I still attended for a few years the Salvation Army Sunday school. And how old are you at this point when you got saved? I think I was about 12, probably. Mm -hmm. Okay. So also my language was cleaned up. The music I like changed. And plus all those friends that were kind of uh, preventing me from getting saved, they kind of left. I guess they were tired of me preaching at them. <laughs> so 
those are just some of the changes that were kind of immediate. Of course, as a songwriter said, the Lord is still working on me to make me what I ought to be. So I'm not even close to what I should be mm-hmm. at this point. But definitely after I got saved, I remember even though my theology wasn't on point, mm-hmm. I know I was sharing the gospel with a bunch of friends to the folks around me. Yeah. So do you think that the way your barriers were removed, the way God removed the barriers in your life regarding salvation, do you think that the way your barriers were removed would be effective in reaching people in the culture today? The culture, I mean, both here in America and in Antigua today? Well, actually, yes and no. Mm. Yes, in the fact that I believe Jesus is the ultimate barrier remover. But also, no, since I believe God used our unique personality, our unique circumstances to meet us where we are. Yeah. And Amen. just for me, what the Lord used for me would probably be different from what the Lord used for someone else. So, yes, in the fact that Jesus is the one who actually removed barriers, Jesus is the one who saved you what he has done upon the cross. But knowing the fact that my circumstances were probably unique to me and everyone else's circumstances will be unique to them. But at the end of the day, everyone is going to be saved through Jesus Christ. Yeah. So yes and no. Of course, it's funny enough that after I got saved and I've been reading my Bible, I actually watched the movie Jesus of Nazareth again. And I didn't realize how far away from scripture it was. Mm. I wouldn't even call it biblically sound. Yeah. So I was surrounded with the Salvation Army who never preached sin or the gospel. I was surrounded with Moravians. I was surrounded with Seventh-day Adventists. I had a Rastafarian uncle. All of these religious beliefs around me. But the Lord removed all those. The Lord found and, and saved you anyway. Bring me to salvation. Praise God. And if he wasn't for my mom, I'll probably either be a Moravian or Seventh-day Adventist today. Who knows? Mm. But God is gracious and God is good. Can you describe a little bit the independent fundamental Baptist church that you ended up going to? When you look back on how they received you and taught you and discipled you pretty much the rest of your life until I met you, could you describe how they shaped you into the Christian that you are today? I don't know if it's a independent fundamental Baptist thing or independent Baptist thing. I was hungry for the word. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I didn't understand doctrine or understand that there's a difference in doctrine where other churches preach. I knew, at least when it comes to music, some churches had a little bit more lively music than others compared to the independent Baptist or even the Seventh-day Adventist. I had an aunt and uncle who was actually Church of Christ. And I thought, they're going to church, so they're Christians. You know, even though certain Christ teach that baptism regeneration, which is false in scripture, baptism doesn't save, Mm -hmm. but they teach that. I think the first time doctrine actually came to the forefront for me was maybe a couple of months after I got saved or already going to the Baptist church. And even though I was going to the Baptist church. Doctrine wasn't still that important to me. But I remember I told my uncle-in-law that I got saved. 
because I knew that they go to church and they profess to be Christians, but they go to the Church of Christ. And he was the first person I told that I got saved that I knew was a Christian, but he didn't seem excited over the fact that I got saved. Everyone else that I know as professed Christians, and I told them that I got saved, they all rejoiced to the fact that I got saved or stuff like that. But he said, well, that's what they taught you. And I was baffled, but he seemed a little bit miffed. So I didn't really ask him what he meant or anything. It wasn't until I met someone from the Baptist church I was going to, mm-hmm. and I told them what happened. And they said, oh, it is because the Church of Christ teaches that baptism saved. And I think that's when, for the first time, doctrine kind of became important to me because, mm-hmm. oh, churches actually teaches different things. Different things, yeah. And it kind of dawned on me then. So then, yeah. you know, of course, I went to the scriptures and searched the scripture to figure out, hey, how are you really saved? And stuff like that. So, mm. What now are you doing personally in the area of evangelism, perhaps even in the area of discipleship, to help remove barriers like the ones you faced in your life when you're witnessing to or encountering others? Well, I seek to share the gospel with every opportunity I get. I wish I could say I share the gospel with every opportunity I get, but I do seek to share the gospel with every opportunity I get. I lead out the soul-winning group at my church. We go out twice per week to share the gospel, knock on doors or follow-ups. Of course, we have this podcast, Removing mm-hmm. Barriers, I guess a quote-unquote a ministry that we use to share the gospel. I always seek to have checks on me as well. So I have checks in my car, checks at my front door, and wherever I go, I try to either verbally share the gospel or to hand out a track with someone if I can't share the gospel verbally. So as I said, when I got saved, sharing the gospel to me was a natural outpouring of it. Right. Even though for me, which is kind of weird, I'm actually an introvert. A lot of folks know, oh, you have a podcast and stuff like that. People think you're extrovert. Or because you lead out the soul and ministry, you're extrovert. I'm actually an introvert by nature. Doing stuff like that is not natural for me. But those are things that I seek to do to share the gospel because I never personally want to lose sight of what Christ did for me upon the cross of Calvary. I think that many times I like to go back there and realize and just, hey, what Christ did for you was nothing short of amazing. Mm, Nothing short of a miracle of amazing.
All right, we're going to go now into a fun section. You obviously know this, but now it's your turn. You're on the other side of the mic and we get to ask you, what are some of your favorites? First, what is your favorite scripture verse? For now, it is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For he had made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What an exchange. Christ took my sins and placed me in his righteousness. Mm. That verse just wowed me every time I read it. Because he took my sins, who knew no sin, that I can be made the righteousness of God in him. I don't think anyone else would do that for me no. besides my Savior. Praise the Lord. What is your favorite historical biblical account? So my favorite book is Acts, but my favorite biblical history, I think, would yeah. be the life of Joseph. I remember as a youth, I listened to a series of messages entitled, Living a Functional Life in a Dysfunctional World. And that was me. I was trying to live a functional life with the many dysfunctions that were around me. Mm. And I made a lot of decisions for the Lord listening to those messages. I think I had them, and I used to listen to them. I don't know what happened to them at this point. I don't even know the name of the preacher. But I remember listening to those messages, taking notes, some of which I still have to this day. So I would say Joseph, definitely, or the life of Joseph would be my favorite Bible history, just because of the many decisions I made during those messages mm. as the preacher was going through his life. What would you say is the most convicting scripture passage for you? Well, right now, I would say it is Acts 17 and verse 6. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. I marvel at how the Apostle Paul and their early church, the early apostles, early disciples of Christ, were able to turn their world upside down with the gospel. And they did it with what they have. Mm-hmm. I contend that we have everything that they had and more. We have the power of the same God, the indwelling of the same Holy Spirit, the ability to be totally surrendered and obedient to God. But we apparently are doing a lot less. I know a lot of folks will say, oh, well, the population of the earth was a lot smaller and stuff like that. Regardless, the Bible says that they turned the world upside down. And I wonder, why is it that I cannot turn even my community upside down with the gospel of Christ? Having more, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19 says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereon we do dwell, that he take heed as unto the light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. We have the complete word of God. They didn't have the complete word of God. And we have everything that they had back then. But yet we seem like we're doing so much more. So it marveled me that they were able to turn at least their world, their communities, upside down with the gospel of Christ. And we can't. And I can't. And that would be an aim of mine. How can I turn my community, my neighborhood, upside down with the gospel of Christ? And I think if every Christian even seek to do that, maybe the country wouldn't be in the state that it is in today. Yeah. So. Mm. 
What is the most comforting scripture verse to you? Well, there's so many comforting scripture verses. I don't know if I can choose one. And of course, my favorites change like the wind. So, mm-hmm. But I will say Romans chapter 10, verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall, shall be saved. Save. Because I'm so glad that the Bible didn't say might, mm-hmm. because I probably will not be saved at this moment if they said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord might be saved. But the Bible says shall, and that is a, definitely a comfort. Romans 8, verse 15, For he have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but he have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. I'm just glad that I can go to my Heavenly Father directly to his throne, like a son to a daddy. That's a comfort to me. And of course, I will also say Galatians 4, verse 4 to 7, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions of Son. And because he has sons, God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. I remember when I was praying to the Lord to seek his face about who I should marry and to confirm UJ in my heart, the Lord used those verses to confirm that this is the woman and the wife that you have for me. So those verses, those verses are definitely a comfort. Praise the Lord. What is your favorite hymn of the faith? Well, right now, my favorite hymn, I will say, is the Old Rugged Cross. Again, I like verses and songs that kind of remind me of the cross and remind me what Christ has done for me. So for now, it's the old word cross. He said, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. To the old rugged cross, I will ever be true. His shame and reproach godly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away, where his glory forever I'll share. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross, till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. I will definitely say that right now that song would be my favorite. Wonderful. That actually surprises me. I thought you were going to say your favorite was Faithful Men by Ron Hamilton, I think it is. No. No? Okay, I got it wrong. So, Old Rugged Cross. Okay. Who is your favorite giant of the faith from the Bible? Is it Joseph, like you mentioned before, or is it someone else? No, I wouldn't say Joseph is my giant. The life of Joseph and those messages definitely would be my favorite biblical history. But there's so many. Of course, Joseph can say Paul, but I think I would say Jabez. Jabez, can you explain who he is and what's his story and why he's your favorite giant of the faith? Well, the Bible says in First Chronicles chapter four, verse nine to ten. So if you go to First Chronicles chapter four and you start reading, it's a bunch of genealogies. It's a bunch of names that no one can really say except maybe for Alexander Scorby. <laughs> and who knows if Alexander Scorby is saying them correctly? But there's a bunch of names. Then there's this pause almost like a commercial break. Uh And the Bible says in verse 9, And Jabez was more honorable than his brethren. And his mother called his name Jabez, saying, 
because I bear him with sorrow. And Jabez called unto God of Israel, saying, O oh, that thou wouldest bless me indeed, and enlarge my course, and that thine hand might be with me, and that thou wouldest keep me from evil, that it may not grieve me. And God granted him that which he requested. So the reason why I chose Jabez is because despite his circumstances, despite the fact that his mother called him sorrow, what a name, despite his outlook in life, he didn't let that be his future. He didn't let that keep him down. He rose above that and placed his faith in God. There was a time in my life where I would actually pray the prayer of Jabez every day. And I actually believe the Lord answered those prayers. I believe the Lord has definitely enlarged my course and the Lord has blessed me with blessings beyond my imagination as a child growing up. So when I look at the life of Jabez, you know, I wasn't born in the best of circumstances, you know, to a single mother and whatever ideals that they should have been. But because the Lord saved me, he also allowed me to rise above all the things that should be keeping me down and all the things that I could claim to be a victim of. But the Lord, just like Jabez, the Lord yeah. saved him and he was able to rise above that. I think that with the Lord's help, I can rise above whatever my past is. I praise the Lord for that too, because I am a beneficiary of God's manifold blessings in your life. And I tell people this all of the time, that I definitely married up and I married well. And I really believe that God has given our four sons a phenomenal and wonderful role model and father in you. I am so looking forward to the future because of the many blessings that God has poured on you made you the man that you are today and subsequently our sons are blessed for it. I'm blessed for it. I'm so grateful and proud and humbled to be your wife. Well, now that I've embarrassed you sufficiently, <laughs> let's pull it all together. Let's glorify the Lord, magnify him for what he's done in your life and tell everyone, tell us, all of these barriers that we've discussed in this particular podcast, in your testimony and in your life, how can those barriers be removed in the lives of others? Well, I will go back to Ecclesiastes and present not the message that was presented to me, but the message of the Bible from Ecclesiastes. I'll start in chapter 11, verse 9 to 10. The Bible says, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth. And let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Therefore remove sorrow from thine heart, and put away evil from thy flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. I believe that Solomon wrote these verses in his old age while reflecting on his glorious youth when he was a youngster and the tragic failures he had. He's saying, hey, young man, live how you want to live. Do whatever your heart is telling you to do. But know this, God will bring you into judgment. Then I think he aimed to convince the youths 
of the futility of worldly living. Solomon is saying here, hey, yeah, you can have a lot of fun, but it's futile. Walk in the ways of thine own heart, but the judgment will come. So when he go into chapter 12, which is where the preacher was at when I got saved, he declares, remember now that creator in the days of thy youth. So instead of walking in the way of your heart and do whatever you want to do and be judged and face judgment, he said, remember now that creator in the days of thy youth. Now when you're old, not when you have lived all your life, but in the days of thy youth. And he says here, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun or the light or the moon or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain. I think Solomon commands here is to remember your creator when you're young. Mm. And he went on to explain why in verse 3 to 7, he explained why. And of course, we know Ecclesiastes is a poetic book. I believe the Bible should be interpreted in the language it was written in. So Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes are poetic books. And you can see in the Psalm when David says that God will gather you under his wings. Well, we know God doesn't have any wings, but he's a metaphor to our hen will gather his strict sign of protection. So when you read Ecclesiastes chapter 12, realizing that it's poetic, Solomon is comparing the aging body to an aging house in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. So as he tell you to remember your creator in the days of their youth, he went on to start explaining the deterioration of the body as you get older by using a house. So in verse 3, he says, In the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble, and the strong men shall bow themselves, and the grinders shall cease because they are few, and those that look out the window be darkened. The keepers of the house here, I believe, represent the arms and the hands. The strong men are the legs, the grinders are the teeth, and the windows are the eyes. So Solomon is saying here, there will become a time in your life when your arms and your hands are going to tremble, you become weak. The strong men, the legs, shall bow themselves. The grinders are few. As you get older, you lose your teeth. Mm. And he says that those that look out to the window darken. As you get older, you lose your eyesight as well. So Solomon is saying, hey, you're going to get old. You're not going to be as strong as you are now. You're not going to have as much teeth as you are. So you're not going to be as handsome or beautiful as you are now. And you're not going to be able to see as well. He went on even further in verse 4. He says, and the doors shall be shut in the street when the sound of the grinding is low. And he shall rise up at the voice of the bird, and all the daughters of music shall be brought low. Here, Solomon is saying, the closing of the door represents the difficulty in speaking in the elderly. As you get older, speaking becomes more difficult. The sound of the music is low, representing the difficulty in hearing. The daughters of music shall be brought low. That also represents the worsening or the weakening of the vocal cords. And Solomon also highlighted the difficulty in sleeping here as well. So as you get older, all these things start happening to you. Solomon say, remember now that creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not. In verse 5 he says, And when they shall be afraid of that which is high, and faith shall be in the way, and the almond tree shall flourish, and the grasshopper shall be a burden, and desire shall fail, because men 
goeth to his long home, and the mourners go about the street. As you get older, they also develop a fear of height, when they shall be afraid of that which is high, and also they have a fear of falling. A lot of elderly people walk really slowly and move really slow because they have a fear of falling or they have an inability to protect themselves. The almond tree shall flourish. That's talking about the gray hair that you get as you get older. And the grasshopper shall be a burden. You will be easily irritated. I don't know how much old people you have been around, but as I said, as a mischievous kid growing up, I have encountered a lot of old people that were easily irritated by something that I was doing wrong. But that's just a fact, as Solomon is saying here. Desire shall fail. That include many fleshly desires as they get older. Those desires that rage in one's youth, they're going to fade one day. And Solomon tells us, hey, finally, because men go to his long home and mourners go about the street, one day you will die. And that's the crux of the message here. One day you will die. So remember your creator in the days of the youth. And you think Solomon would end there. But he went on in verse 6, he says, or ever the silver cord be loose, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel be broken at the cistern. Solomon went on here to describing the deteriorating body after death. He said, or oh, even the silver cord be loose, representing the spinal cord, or the golden bowl be broken, representing the brain, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, representing the lungs, or the wheel be broken, representing the heart. All these things, you're dead now. Then in verse 7, Solomon finally say, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. So now you are dead and buried, and life is over. Is that what life is all about? All of us, we are born someday. We grow up, we get married, we have a bunch of kids, we have a good career, and we die. Solomon finally cries out in verse 8 vanity of vanities said the preacher all is vanity Solomon is saying here basically life is meaningless and worthless but is it there's so much folks out there trying to find meaning and trying to find fulfillment in their career and once their career is over they have nothing to turn to that's why so much people get divorced after their kids grew up because they live for their kids and they live through their kids and when their kids grow up and leave their home, life becomes worthless. They have nothing. Is this the plight of the everyday man? You are born, you grow up, you get married, have a good career, and you die. Solomon says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Do we live, have a family, work all our lives, and die? There's a poem that says, when as a child, I laugh and wept. Time crept. When as a youth I dream and talk, time walks. When I become a fully grown man, time run. When older I daily grew, time flew. Soon you shall find in traveling on, time gone. Hmm. Friends, the Bible declares in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 29, and as it appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. One day we'll all die but there's more to life than the everyday man the plight of the everyday man the nine to five rat race 
starting a family, working hard and die. The Bible says in John chapter 10 and verse 10, the thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Jesus promised that he's come to give us abundant life. But how do we get that abundant life? How do we get a life that doesn't define us by the plight of the everyday man? I'm glad you asked. First, you must realize that the reason why we all will die someday is because we are all sinners. The Bible declares in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. And of course, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 20, for there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. So you must realize that we are sinners. We are born in sin and God will judge it for that sin. But secondly, we must realize that there's a penalty for that sin. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, for the rages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life to Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the Bible is telling us here that the rages, our payment for our sins will be death. John chapter 3 verse 18 to 19 says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is what condemned already, because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Yet, in our sin, yet in our condemnation, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love for us while we were unloving, while we were unlovely, while we were in the filth of our sin. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God commended his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible declares in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So do you want to know how to have that abundant life? First, recognizing that you're a sinner. Secondly, recognize that there's a penalty for sin. And thirdly, turn to Christ, the repentant faith. The Bible says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You know, Solomon wrapped up his admonition in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 with verse 13. After he says, You know what? If you look in the verses just before verse 13, Solomon talked about the weariness of the flesh by studying and all these other things. Solomon turned to women and pleasures of this world. And it is even believed that Solomon even hired a comedian to entertain him. And Solomon said none of that was fulfillment to him. But in verse 13, he concludes and says, In order for us to have that abundant life, let us see the conclusion of the whole matter. What's the conclusion of all this? Let's see the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandment, for this is the whole duty of man. My question to you, dear listener, are you doing your duty? 
thank you for listening. To get a hold of us, to support this podcast, or to learn more about removing barriers, go to removingbarriers.net. This has been the Removing Barriers podcast. We attempted to remove barriers so that we all can have a clear view of the cross.